Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. When I started FRDH a little over six years ago, the idea was to bring historical perspective to discussion of current events and to make use of my archives, accumulated over decades of reporting for NPR and the BBC. Twenty years ago, the week I'm posting this, I arrived in northern Iraq, Kurdistan, to cover the Iraq War as an unembedded reporter. My assignment for WBUR, the Boston NPR station, was to follow the overthrow of Saddam Hussein through the eyes of someone who had suffered under Saddam. In Kurdistan, that wouldn't be a problem. Everybody had suffered under that hideous regime. By luck, I met the perfect subject almost immediately. What follows is the documentary I made and was ready to air within a month of the war's end. The war was a failure. That's easy to say. Too many of the anniversary assessments in America and Britain leave out the essential voice, that of Iraqis. That's not the case here. Ahmad Shokat's voice and that of his family shaped this story. And the documentary is rich in sound pictures that I recorded and that I think stand up as history, no longer a rough draft. It is the longest podcast I have ever put up, and I urge you to listen to the end. And, as always, visit the FRDH website and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. I'm Michael Goldfarb, and this is Ahmed's War, Inside Out. The war in most of Iraq started bang on time. Hostilities began last night, U.S. time, when American cruise missiles landed at Baghdad. Effort to decapitate Iraq's leadership or some of missile strikes on Kuwait throughout the morning here, and they caused the soldiers to put on gas masks. And Zangaros is in Baghdad. It's a ghost town. It doesn't look like a city at war. It, it's it's just bizarre. There's almost no traffic. The stores are shuttered. People are scared. Uh, considering reports they've heard about a massive. But in Erbil, the largest city in the Kurdish autonomous region of northern Iraq, things were comparatively calm. The festival of Nowruz was being celebrated. Nowruz, New Year's, is a holiday whose origins go back to the Zoroastrian religion, a fire-worshipping pre-Christian faith. In this part of the world, oil has been seeping out of the ground and catching fire for millennia, and people have been worshipping the phenomenon for as long as they've lived here. In Erbil, that's been a very long time. The city's citadel is built on the ruins of settlements going back to 6000 BC, making Erbil one of the oldest continuously inhabited towns on the face of the earth. On the night the war started, Ahmad Shokat was sitting in the lobby of a hotel at the foot of the citadel. Erbil's handful of hotels had become job exchanges for any local who spoke English. Hundreds of reporters were in town to cover the war, all of them needed translators. Somehow, Ahmed had failed to catch on with anyone. Perhaps because he looked too old, somewhere in his late 50s. Perhaps because he was too courtly and diffident, not a quality that's helpful when working hostile crowds in a conflict. Or perhaps it was because his English was too literary. Most people interviewing for a translator's job will tell you all about their local contacts and the news organizations they've worked for. Ahmed wanted to talk about his favorite American author, William Faulkner. Now, it's not every day in Kurdistan that you come across someone who can discuss the Compson family and the other denizens of Yakna Patofa County, so I decided to hire him, and he agreed to work with me, on one condition, that we stay together until the end of the war. He wanted to witness the fall of Saddam up close. He had his reasons. Ahmed was living in exile from his home in Mosul, just over in Iraqi regime territory. To begin with, the conflict was fought at night, out on a vast green plain, which separates Erbil from Kirkuk, the oil capital of northern Iraq, and Mosul, the great population center of the area. Both Kirkuk and Mosul were still under the control of Saddam's regime. Each evening, Ahmed and I would drive to some camp or other of the Kurdish Peshmerga, local fighters who were America's coalition allies in the north. We would wait, look, and listen for airstrikes, 
or artillery fire, just some sign of fighting. A favorite place to go was Dola Bakr, halfway between Erbil and Kirkuk. There was striking around this area, some kilometers. Is this the normal light from uh, Kirkuk, or is this bombing? That's uh, burning petrol. That's petrol. I actually can see flares. If you look at that spot... The Kirkuk oil fields were still operational, burning off natural gas. It was a quiet night, and the Peshmerga were entertaining themselves. The mood lacked the tension you associate with war. The young guys had their minds on things other young guys on an adventure sleeping under the stars think about. Whiskey. Whiskey? You're drinking whiskey? Whiskey. In your tent? You have whiskey here? No, no, no. no, no. Erbil, Erbil. In Erbil, yeah. We nattered and listened to more music. Then a sound came on the wind. On a ridgetop outlined in silver by the frail light of a million stars, there was tracer and mortar fire. There was no way of knowing who was fighting whom. The ridge was perhaps 15 miles away. The Iraqi army was up there, but no Peshmerga. The best guess was that it was special forces, the only American troops in the area. But there really wasn't much to see on our nighttime patrols. When the Turkish parliament did the unexpected thing and accurately reflected the will of its constituents by refusing to allow the U.S. to base its soldiers in Turkey, the prospect of a real northern front in the war was effectively ended. During the day, we drove all around the Kurdish autonomous region trying to find out what had happened along the front, Peshmerga fight songs dominated the airwaves. It was relatively safe to travel. After the first Gulf War, the Kurds had risen up against Saddam, and they were crushed. But the various ceasefire agreements that ended the Gulf War created a de facto Kurdish entity, protected by the American and British air forces as part of the northern no-fly zone. It took Kurdish political leaders almost a decade to stop fighting each other and make the most of the situation. As this war started, there was good security cooperation between the two main Kurdish groups, the Kurdistan Democratic Party and Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. There were frequent security checkpoints along the roads. So, as long as you didn't go for a walk in any of Kurdistan's beautiful emerald green pastures, which were littered with landmines, you were safe. We spent hours listening to the radio. Occasionally, a PSYOPs message from the U.S. to Iraqi forces would come up. The message would give out a telephone number to local Iraqi commanders to call if they wanted to surrender. On these trips, Ahmed and I had plenty of time to get to know each other. The outline of his life was extraordinary. My translator was a former biology lecturer at the University of Mosul, his hometown, the author of seven books, ranging in subject matter from archaeology and psychology to fiction. He was a frequent contributor to Arabic newspapers and a regular occupant of Saddam's torture chambers, which is why he was living in Erbil as a political refugee. He's also the father of eight children, grandfather of six, and despite his personal travails, his home is full of laughter. <laughs> Ahmed invited me for lunch one day. Twenty miles away, there was a war going on, but in Erbil, the more pleasant aspects of life, entertaining guests to a good meal, carried on. 
In the kitchen, his wife was preparing dolma, stuffed eggplant, peppers, and cucumbers, and giving orders to her two daughters. Ahmed's wife is called Um Sindibad. Like most traditional Arab women, she prefers to be identified as the mother of her firstborn son, Sindibad. The house is modest. This is a home of exile. There's a courtyard with lemon and orange trees, a couple of rooms on the first floor, a couple of rooms on the second. Not a lot of space for eight people. But then, when the family fled Mosul, they didn't bring many possessions to take up space. In Mosul, you had chairs. <laughs> he said Dan took them all. He took your books and he took your chairs. Yeah, yeah. yeah my furniture, my TV, my refrigerator and the freezer. And had a very big house in Mosul. We sat on the floor in the furnitureless living room that also doubles as Ahmed's bedroom and study. And with Ahmed translating, 26-year-old Sindibad made an alcohol-free toast. Uh, this is the first meeting in Erbil. I hope the second will be in Mosul. And we fell to devouring the delicious food. In addition to a mountain of dolma, there was a bowl of thick tomato and okra soup and a light chicken broth and a couple of roast chickens plus plates of chopped tomatoes and cucumber. Oh, and rice and bread. Arab hospitality is a very real phenomenon, albeit one that can lead to arguments with reluctant eaters. Eat, eat, Roha, eat, and more, because you are very weak. I've come to the conclusion that the biggest argument in this part of the world isn't about politics, it's about being polite and eating more and more. And more. Yeah. Although politics is certainly part of daily conversation in Ahmed's house. We would like to have in the nearest future an American president. Does she want an American president? Yes. Better than Saddam. Better than him. Do you agree, Rohan? But I wish to have an American ruler because when we have an Iraqi ruler, nobody can ask him to offer us anything because always our rulers are getting from us and not giving us anything. Ahmed's family is a cosmopolitan mix of Iraqi culture and ethnicity. He is a non-believer. His wife and children are devout Muslims. Ahmed is Kurdish. Um Sindibad is Arab. I wondered how they met. She was my neighbor, and she was my student. So we recognized each other and loved each other for two years. Thereafter, we got married. I always thought that most marriages are arranged here in the Arab Yeah, arranged by fathers and mothers. So yours is But different. we, no, no. No, Did she know when she married you that you wouldn't know when to shut up and that you would get in trouble with the regime? Yes, I know very well because I knew that he was... That he was a politician and writer and uh, and one of my friends advised her that I am going to make her very tired in her life, but she insisted to marry me. Life without problems couldn't be interesting. Um Sindibad, who prays five times a day, is convinced that Allah is the only reason her husband has survived his several stays inside Saddam's prisons. I asked if they ever discussed religion. Completely, and we always we are fighting. Contrast to each other. God bless. Ahmed is better now than previous. <laughs> and because he was in prison recently. Mosul was the main topic of discussion at lunch. Mosul is still home. Mosul is just an hour's drive away. But after seven years in exile in Erbil, 
going back had Ahmed's son Sindibad apprehensive. That the great problems are going to rise after war, not now. But first, the war had to be won. Slowly, the intense combat in the south was having its effect in the north. The Iraqi army began to pull back from its positions. The Peshmerga moved forward 20 kilometers past Dola Bakr to the outskirts of a small town called Alton Kupri. The Peshmerga were cleaning up after Saddam, demining the pastures along the roadside. There were hundreds of landmines in the fields, and the Peshmerga mine-clearing crew had some odd notions about safety. They flung dozens of the deadly things into the back of a truck. They put 50 or so more in a pit and covered them with gasoline. Let's get away from the area. They are going to bomb it. The city of Mosul was the only real military objective in Ahmed Shokat's war. But a low, wide ridge and 80-kilometer-long speed bump separated his life as an exile in Erbil from a return home to Mosul. And all along the ridge were units of the Iraqi army. By the end of the second week of the war, the Iraqis had begun to fall back. They disappeared in the night, and we would go out to look at the territory they had given up the next day. Then, one night, they disappeared from the area where the main road from Erbil to Mosul crossed the ridge. The Iraqi army established itself on the far side of a bridge in the village of Khazar. Along with half the press corps in northern Iraq, we raced out to the Khazar bridge to see what had happened. Ahmed was getting giddy. Can, can you see Mosul from here? No, I can feel, of course, but I cannot see it. <laughs> You're smiling. Yeah, I'm very happy. We're on recon with Ahmed. (laughs) He led me on a private reconnaissance patrol to a little rise on one side of the road overlooking the bridge. You can see a slight ridge behind that village. The the Iraqi soldiers are along the ridge. They will try for the next coming days to control these areas as long as they can. Because behind that ridge, there is a flat area until Mosul. They cannot hide themselves in a positions or, or make useful the geographical features. We walked towards the bridge, and then suddenly the topic of conversation changed. Since when I was in a prison, my family had borrowed a great sum of money from their relatives. Mm-hmm. And I have to pay. I have to work for a long time to pay, to retain back those money. So it will be very difficult for me if I remain without a job again. It seemed an odd thing to bring up at the time. But just because there is a war on in your country doesn't mean the mundane worry of how you're going to feed your family and pay your debts goes away. On the other side of the road, we saw some American special forces talking to a couple of reporters. We walked over, and one of them recognized us. Hey, you gave some guys a ride the other day, didn't you? It was you, wasn't it? Do you want to talk? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we scored me away The previous week, we had come across a couple of special forces troops, Green Berets as it turned out, whose car had broken down by the side of the road. We towed them 20 miles back to their base. These were the same fellows. Actually, if you guys can just give us a couple minutes, we're going to reestablish a site up here. Okay. And then uh, we'll give you guys a, a story. That's how we spent last night. Let uh, Egypt Tango know we're taking a mortar fire again over. Uh, that was a pretty good one there, man. Yeah, it was. That was close. That's one of the close ones. You gotta love that sound. Yeah. 
It's best when you hear that sound, because if you didn't hear it, guess what? <laughs> Did you hear that boom? Like that? Get out. Hey, start your hat. See the flash? No. I didn't. All right, they're right. They got that point zeroed in. Hey, why don't you guys jump in the back of that truck real quick and get that we piled into the back of one of their flatbed trucks, all except Ahmed, who was staring dreamily towards where the artillery was coming from. Ahmed, come on, come on, come on. I'm not the most. We fell back around 200 yards to what we thought was safety. Hey, you guys can get in and get a ride because it's probably going to get airy once they get a forever. Okay. Hey, they're on the back side right here. I sit there. This is worse. Hold on to my... I'm balanced. Hold on to my arm. It's okay. It's okay. I hope Sandy got out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We sped over the fields and finally pulled up in a little fold of pasture where the Green Berets and their Peshmerga comrades had set up a command post. That was a nice ride. Thanks, fellas. Even here, there were rules of hospitality to be observed. The Peshmerga offered us refreshments. It's chai? What? Yeah. Drink? No, drink? chai. It's chai. Good to in the front. I wanted to know what Ahmed was thinking about, daydreaming while those shells were coming in. His service in the Iran-Iraq war, as it turned out. I saw there the real war, the Iranian-Iraqi war. Were you scared? I saw many of my colleagues injured and wounded because I was a medic. It is very normal for me to see. Uh, don't worry. Yeah. While we were sipping chai, the Green Berets had been busy calling in air support. How far away are they? They could be very side of the river. You'll hear just wait for the impact. With the airstrike called in, they were ready to talk. Yeah. Not everybody gets paid to have this much fun. Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, don't quote me on that. That's I won't. I promise you. Radio and the attitude remark. Radio, gun, and a good attitude. <laughs> a radio, gun, and an attitude were all the Green Berets claimed to need out here. Basically, we're... How many of us? There's only ten of us. Yeah. And roughly... 99 Peshmerga. 99? 99 Peshmerga. I ran into some of your colleagues down that way towards Sulaymaniyah. They were working with that translator. And I'm just wondering if you guys, how you communicate locally. Um, we hadn't had a translator the first day, and all hell was breaking loose. And they pretty much do exactly what you do. So, But in, in this situation, is it your call to tell them what to do? We work together. We take their advice, with, you know, what they recommend. I mean... This is their backyard. They know the tactics and the terrain. They know by sight, two ridgelines away, if a guy's Peshmerga or if he's Iraqi, which is amazing. We've learned a lot from them, and they've learned a lot from us. So this was how the war was fought in the north. Ten Green Berets, plus 99 Peshmerga, plus all the firepower the U.S. could muster from the sky, kept the Iraqi army units around Mosul sufficiently occupied that they could not be withdrawn to help defend Baghdad. But miscommunication between special forces on the ground and jets in the air caused a terrible event several days later. An American jet bombed a group of Peshmerga and journalists. Eighteen Kurds were killed in the war's worst friendly fire incident. News of the bombing spread by osmosis, and we raced to see what had happened. It was a gray, blustery day better suited to England than the Middle East. The incident had happened south of Erbil on the road to Mahmur. Green Berets and Peshmerga were taking on a squadron of Iraqi tanks. By the time we arrived, around an hour later, a pair of F-18s were swarming the sky. One dropped out of the cloud cover, lifted its left wing, dipped to the right, and released two precision-guided bombs. We saw the puffs of smoke out on the plane where they landed about three seconds before we heard the explosions. There was the occasional sound of anti-aircraft fire, forlornly trying to track the jets. The Peshmerga were no longer singing or offering cups of tea. They were grim about what we were seeing. Okay, let's go look at this. This This is what happened. Look at this. Yeah. This was the friendly fire incident? This, yeah, friendly fires. 
every war, we have to understand and to accept those accidents. We walked through the smoking, still hot wreckage. It was clear what had happened. By a crossroads in a ditch was an abandoned Iraqi tank, and the convoy must have stopped to take a look. The pilot, involved in the assault on Iraqi tank positions, had seen the vehicle and armed men swarming around it and dropped the bomb. One of the trucks apparently was carrying munitions, and this added to the carnage. Seventeen of the dead were Peshmerga. One was the BBC's local translator. The bodies were removed quickly, but the roadside an hour later was still covered with splotches of blood and charred bits of flesh. About 200 yards further down the road, special forces had set up operations in an abandoned Iraqi position looking out over the plain. The soldiers were focused entirely on the battle in front of them, not the carnage just behind. They had no idea what had happened. So we don't know. We ran up there, our medics all, we sent our medics up to do what they can, and that was, that's all we could do. It's just like, uh, I hate to say the expression, shit happens. You know? you know, the, when did it all start? Uh, sunrise this morning. Yeah. Who started it? We did. With special forces in the Peshmerga picking up the offensive, our routine changed. Daytime was for watching battle. The evenings were for watching the news on TV at Ahmed's house. Baghdad was surrounded, and like people all over the world, we sat transfixed watching the Iraqi information minister, Mohammed Saeed Sahaf, lying for Saddam to the very end. Himself. We've been hearing this since yesterday. They are denying that the U.S. troops have taken over the airport, denying that the troops have gone into Baghdad. You feel shame? Oh, Sahaf? Sahaf, yeah. Sahaf doesn't feel shame. <laughs> Watching the regime fall, Ahmed started talking in detail about his life. His story is a paradigm of what happened to many who were born into Iraq's middle class, once the best educated middle class in the Arab world. Ahmed precisely dates his birth as a political activist. 1968, exactly. Ahmed was a student at the University of Mosul. It was not just in the West that 1968 was the great year of student political activism. In Iraq as well, it was a time when students thought they could reshape, if not the whole world, at least their own country. In Iraq, it was also the year the Ba'ath Party seized power in a military coup. I met a friend from Nasserian movements in Iraq. In other words, people who, who follow Jamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt. Nasser's vision of all Arabs coming together in a single socialist nation had a powerful resonance for the first generation of Arabs born after the end of European colonial rule. Ahmed was a precocious activist in Mosul's Nasserian movement, but as he rapidly rose through the ranks, he discovered a flaw in the organization, an authoritarian strain quite at odds with its democratic principles. I had been selected as a leader of uh, Ninawa region by quite free voting in democratic uh, style. They said, well, you are Kurdish. You have not to be a leader because we are an Arabic national movement. So I said, okay, bye-bye. Uh, they announced the, uh, the Iraqi authorities of Ba'ath Party that I am their big enemy in the region of Nineveh. So I had been present several times because of that. Having made the acquaintance of the local jailers, Ahmed renounced active politics and became a biology lecturer at the University of Mosul's prestigious medical faculty. In his free time, he lived the life of an old-fashioned man of letters, writing fiction and criticism, and giving lectures on literature, although even here, politics intruded. When you write a critical article about literature and Iraqi thinking, you have to mention the ideology aspects it was forbidden to, to, to discuss such affairs in Iraq. Completely forbidden. Something like a sin. And for this reason, I had been arrested several times by the authorities. Stop writing in such a way. Stop 
talking in such a way in your lectures in with your students we have many many reports written on you that you are discussing all these things with your students and your your students are a medical student why you talk with them but in the end it wasn't the political nature of his literary lectures that brought ahmed to a long period in prison it was money in the early 80s, with Saddam bankrupting Iraq to pursue his war with Iran, the regime demanded that Iraqis give over their gold to help finance the conflict. Ahmed, who had been recalled to active military duty, would not comply. I refused. I said, I, I don't have any gold. So they arrested me for uh, six months. It was in Kirkuk, in a special prison. So what did they do to you? Oh, they, they practiced every violation, body violation, <laughs> with me. Every kind. You were laughing. <laughs> yeah. They practiced the iron on my back, and practiced the electrical chair. When you sit on, on the electrical chair, that bloody chair, they pushed a button, and the chair began to collapse me and to make me like small ball. Are they asking you questions? Yes, of course. Many, many questions. With whom you are working, who encouraged you to be uh, an Iraqi opposition, who are your friends, and they asked about all my family. Everything. In precise details. But Ahmed really had stopped working within a political group and had no information to give. After six months, simply they said, excuse us, we misunderstood. Go continue your service in your military hospital. <laughs> but that really wasn't the end of it. A few years later, he received a letter informing him that because of his previous political activities and his refusal to join the Ba'ath party, he was being retired at the age of 35 from his lectureship at the university. How did you feel? Very sad. Because I told you, my relation with my students were very intimate. I was thinking to make those students enlightening people. So you would hope that by what you gave to them, they would go and give to others? Yeah. I lost the, the dearest relationship. So I got very sad, and I felt great despair. And I think that was a reason pushed me to connect with Muslim brothers. Ahmed joined the Muslim Brotherhood, the ultra-Islamist political sect. He grew a beard and prayed five times a day for a while. But, alas, I found that Muslim brothers are worse than Ba'ath Party. Fascists. For a time, Ahmed dropped out of all intellectual activity. With eight children to feed, he had to work. A skilled carpenter, he started a furniture-making business that did very well. He invested some of his profits in a billiard hall in Mosul's Old Town. He became wealthy. But the 1991 Gulf War reawakened his political side. He began to write again. In 1997, he published a book of short stories, magic realist in tone, but there was no mistaking who the wicked caliph was in the tale called Mr. Key. It was Saddam himself. So, off to prison he went again. There was more physical torture, but also psychological torture. Ahmed had had the short stories privately printed, the volumes were being sold at a stall in Mosul's bazaar. The authorities dragged him there and forced him to burn all the copies of his book. He wasn't killed for a simple reason. The Saddam regime loved money. His family paid a ransom of six million dinars, around $40,000 at the time, and he was released. The family fled to the Kurdish autonomous region, and for a more sensible man, that should have been the end of the story. But Ahmed continued to write, and last year decided to try and get to the West. A cousin was driving to Jordan from Mosul, and despite the danger, Ahmed hitched a lift with him. At a checkpoint four kilometers from the Jordanian border and safety, the truck was stopped. Ahmed searched, 
and a little essay of his calling for Saddam to step down and save the Iraqi people was found in his pocket. That was that. He was taken to Baghdad by the police who detained him. Uh, they paid them five million dinners. That's a good price. You're very important. Really, I told them. If I know that my price is five million dinners, you don't need to arrest me in the, in the middle of way to Jordan. I can come by, my, by myself. That arrest should have been his death sentence. But as the international pressure built on Saddam last autumn, the dictator gave a general amnesty to all political prisoners. Ahmed was incredulous. What's going on? I didn't believe it. I don't know until now. I, don't, I can't understand. Well, um Sindibad has a reason. Of course. But, 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 well, but your wife says that it was because she was praying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She said always at night, a long night, they were collectively praise and ask God to release me from that monster. Sometimes I think maybe there. Maybe there I go. A few days later, Baghdad fell, and in Erbil, the streets were filled with teenagers joyriding. We stopped in a sweet shop where about 60 Peshmerga were watching the news. Every time Saddam's statue fell, they cheered. Ahmad Shawkat could sense that his exile in Kurdish Erbil was coming to an end. His return home to Mosul was imminent. Baghdad had fallen. The regime was crumbling. But in northern Iraq, it clung on, with only a handful of U.S. Special Forces troops and the sensitivities of the Turkish government about Kurdish power to consider, American commanders took a go-slow approach to seizing Kirkuk and Mosul. But like Saddam's statue in Baghdad, once the regime in the north was 80% toppled, the people couldn't be stopped from destroying what was left. First, Mahmur fell midway between Kirkuk and Mosul. We drove there immediately, around craters created by B-52 strikes, past a smoldering concrete plant. It was a sizable town, filled with strangers, Peshmerga from the PUK, Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. Mahmur, a Kurdish city, was heavily Arabized by Saddam. He transplanted many Arab families from Iraq south here to dilute the Kurdish influence. In the night, when the Iraqi army fled, so had most of the transplanted Arab families. We drove around the residential neighborhoods, which were surprisingly empty, then came across a group of about 10 people, men, women, and children, who flagged us down. What is she saying? She's calling, bless God, Mr. Bosch. Uh, he made us free. And we had been liberated. It's a great happiness for us. The woman was head of a branch of the Al-Sultan family, and she insisted on showing us her home. We went through a gate into a dusty courtyard to a two-room cinder block house. Two Kurdish families lived here, one in each room. The Kurds do not have small families. The sultans are no exception. This is how you lived? In this room? Eleven persons in this room. Living in this room. The room couldn't have been more than 10 by 12 feet. Along two sides of it were bags of rice from the World Food Program, stacked three or four feet high, which reduced the floor space even more. 
Saddam spends everything for himself and his armies. This is our electricity. There was a small diesel generator in the middle of the floor with a few wires running to the single electric light bulb and small TV, the only appliances the family owned. We went into the room next door where a family of eight lived. The man of the house said they were all part of the extended Al-Sultan family. 72 strong. It's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> it's a village. Yeah. <laughs> because we are always sad and nervous, we sleep with our wives and the babies come. <laughs> always twins. Yeah, always twins. We wandered back to the center of town. The PUK was already establishing its political headquarters. Ahmed was reliving the fall of Saddam's statue. When I saw uh, Saddam's statue is coming down, I cried and jumped to the windows of, of my protective room or the chemicals weapons. At once I removed all the tapes and nylon and uh, all the protective materials. And uh, I cried to all my uh, children, come on, tear everything, cry, loudly cry, Saddam finished. <laughs> what did your kids say? The kids uh, said, mommy, mommy, daddy is going mad. <laughs> so how do you feel coming to Mahmoud? Well, I am very happy to see Mahmoud liberated at last, and I hope to see my city is liberated also, uh, which is Mosul. I had not seen my city since more than seven years ago. It's very great to feel that at last you got your freedom. I'm full of proudness, full of happiness, full of pleasure. What can I say more? As we drove out of the town, we saw a massive column of smoke coming from the direction of Kirkuk, and we knew that city had fallen. It would be only a matter of days before Ahmed could return without fear to Mosul. In the event, it was only 24 hours. In the end, the Green Berets and Peshmerga never took the Khazar Bridge. The Iraqi army tried to blow it up, but the charge didn't destroy the span, just collapsed part of it. The bridge was quickly shored up and one lane was opened and a massive traffic jam built around it as people from Erbil thronged towards Mosul. Some, like Ahmed, were going home. Most, however, were, it turned out, going to loot. We fought our way through the traffic jam, pushed our way through checkpoints. A column of dust rising from the road, a radio tower and smoke on the horizon, and we were in the outskirts of Mosul. Ahmed's son, Sindibad, despite the concerns he voiced at lunch about returning to his hometown, was overwhelmed with joy. You're happy? Yes, I'm happy, yes. <laughs> That's my home. <laughs> we hurried along the road, Ahmed and his son pointing out personal landmarks of the city. My intimate friend, Ismail, come on! Oh, Ismail, our brother Ismail. The roadside was a surreal carnival. A blizzard of paper had settled along it, mile after mile, as if every file in every Mosul office had been thrown into the sky and settled into paper drifts. There were minutes of Ba'ath party meetings, purchase orders from government agencies, even elementary school records, the bureaucratic detritus of a hideous dictatorship. People were flowing in and out of ransacked government food stores and supply depots. Flatbed trucks, many driven by Kurds from the Erbil region, were piled high with unlikely combinations of goods, blankets, bedding, and three-pronged ceiling fans. One boy of around 12 was pushing a giant tractor tire, twice as tall as himself, down the side of the road. The scenes of looting did not dampen the mood inside the car. We drove into a residential neighborhood and pulled up in front of the home of Ahmed's mother-in-law, Sindibad's grandmother. The woman grabbed hold of her grown-up grandson as if she was pulling him from the raging waters of a flood. Next stop was at Ahmed's oldest daughter, Sana's home. There were fewer tears here. 
<laughs> the house was full of children, including Ahmed's youngest grandson and namesake. One of the children gave Ahmed an Iraqi dinar with Saddam's picture on it. Saddam's money. What's it worth? <laughs> Nothing. Chewing gum. After more tea, Ahmed wanted to give me a tour of his city. For three weeks, he'd been promising this tour, culminating in a fish lunch on the banks of the Tigris. That wasn't going to happen today. The tour quickly became a catalog of looting and destruction of government buildings. Bad party. Vehicles management, education management, traffic management. And all of them are being looted. As we crossed the Tigris River and drove into Mosul's old city, the scale of the rioting began to dampen the mood. Bank. Look, oh, bank. The bank. Oh, right. Right. This is extraordinary. By the time we reached Dewasi Square, near the central bank, the heart of the city, the sense of danger was equal to anything we experienced on the battlefield. While the firing went on, Ahmed had already got into a political argument with some onlookers. The subject was democracy. It was getting dangerous hanging around the bank. So we drove back over the Tigris to return to Ahmed's daughter's house. Suddenly, he shouted at our driver to stop. We were by a big three-story high building that had been semi-pancaked by a B-52 strike. We jumped out of the car. What is this? This is the security management, which I had been imprisoned in several times and violated by all kinds of violations. You mean you were tortured? Yeah, tortured. And now it is destroyed. Let's walk across the street. So this is where you they were tortured? Had... Yes. And there is two flowers underneath. Dungeon, basement. Yes, basement. And I was always at the, the deepest one. The missile strike was right on target. I mean, it's crushed down the, the roof of the first building and scorched the entire building. It's still, you can smell it. Yeah. You can still smell the burning. Yeah. Yeah. It's the best perfume I smelled. And so the day went. Elation at returning to his hometown. Despair at the wanton destruction of that same town. Elation again at seeing this terrible symbol of the regime ruined. We returned to his daughter's house. We went up on the roof to count the columns of smoke from major fires. There was no longer a fire service in Mosul, so they burned quite thoroughly. There were five, climbing straight up, then being sheared to the south by the breeze to form a single thin pall over the city. I asked Ahmed what he had been arguing about down by the bank. I tried to, to make them clear, to, to understand what's the, the real meaning of democracy. Democracy is not just to talk as free as he can. I tried to make them understand that democracy is how to protect their homeland, how to defense, uh, how to fight against dictatorism and uh, to prevent violation to human rights. You said you, were, you would start a political party to, to organize work. Yeah, what, what can I do else? Well, you know, we got to town, everybody was really happy. But now, how do you feel? Well, I feel very sad. Really, I feel very sad. I didn't expect that my people is going to behave in such a strange manner. 
to rob everything from the formal institutions just to express themselves that they are against Saddam. Well, if you are against Saddam, try to know how to protect these formal institutions, how to build your homeland again. We had planned to stay in Mosul and brought overnight bags, but there was no electricity, food was in sparse supply, the city was lawless, and there was just a general sadness of mood. So we returned to Erbil. As we drove out of town, committees from the city's mosques were calling on people to return stolen property. We revisited Mosul the next day, but it was even more dangerous. Throughout the war, there was never really a battle for Mosul, but in the first week after the regime collapsed, between 30 and 50 people were killed. For weeks, Ahmed planned to move from Erbil back to Mosul as soon as the war was over. Now the war had ended, and instead, all his Mosul family moved to Erbil. The last time I visited with him, there were 18 people living in his little house. When we spoke on the roof of his daughter's home, Ahmed Shawkat seemed pretty determined to play a part in rebuilding his country. They don't know how to have a clear dialogue between themselves or how to deal with the other countries, how to deal with the other peoples, how to deal, how, how to negotiate between themselves. I hope I will be able to do something. The something Ahmed chose to do was start a weekly newspaper, which gave him a platform to write about democracy and free speech. He called it Without Direction, alluding to the fact that he took no orders from anyone on what to publish. He constantly criticized Islamic terrorists. In return, he received repeated death threats from radical Islamists. On October 28, 2003, while making a phone call on the roof of his office building, my guide to the heart of Iraq, Ahmed Shokat, was murdered. The story doesn't end there. I decided to write a book about Ahmed and his country. The following year, I went back to Mosul to do research. The city was more dangerous than it had been before. Grenade! Get back! Ahmed's war, Ahmed's peace, surviving under Saddam, dying in the new Iraq, was named a New York Times notable book in 2005. A few months later, the publisher went out of business, and the book is now out of print. But a decade after my friend's murder, I republished it for Kindle and other e-readers, and you can read it that way. I have returned to Erbil several times for work, but the situation in Mosul was always too dangerous for me to visit. The last time I was in Iraq was in 2015, when Daesh, ISIS, was in control of the city, so I have never had my fish lunch by the banks of the Tigris. But I stay in touch with my friend's family. All his children have children of their own. His tribe increases. Perhaps someday one of his many grandchildren and I will have that lunch to honor his memory.